0: So it's um, good to see everyone this morning. It's actually uh, been quite a while since I've preached here at Liberty, so uh, I'm not sure if I'm in preaching shape at the moment, Um, but hopefully the uh, training I put in this week was sufficient, and uh, I won't pull a preaching muscle or something. Uh, So we're in the midst of a series on the book of 1 Corinthians. We're kind of going over it, relatively kind of aerial view, and it's entitled Growing Pains. And as Sarah read just now, we're going to be in Chapter 4 today. But what I want to do, uh, sort of to lay the groundwork, is to pull back for a second, look at the big picture of the first four chapters, and then segue in. Um, So everyone who studies 1 Corinthians, uh, almost everyone agrees that beginning with chapter 1, verse 10, to the end of chapter 4 is a major sort of unified block, right? And uh, though there are a couple of dissenters, I agree with the majority of people who believe that the primary issue that Paul is dealing with In that section is division, dealing with factionalism in the church of Corinth. So in chapter 1, verse 10, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Now, I want to make two uh, sort of observations about what he does to address this issue, and that will lead us into chapter 4. The first thing is this. That even though disunity and division are the presenting problem, Paul recognizes that that problem is the result of a lot of underlying problems. And specifically what's happened is that the Corinthians, as still a very young group of Christians, right? Paul probably planted the church about five years prior. They are still very much shaped by their world, by their culture. And so they have brought in worldly understandings of a variety of issues. Uh, issues like wisdom, what is wisdom, what is power, what is good teaching, Um, what is the church, what does it mean to be spiritual? And their understandings of these things are still formed and shaped more by their culture than by Christ, and those things are leading to competitiveness, uh, to pride, and eventually to the division. And so the first thing I want to just highlight is that that's actually an important thing in ministry, to be able to get underneath the presenting problem, a lot of times, to what's actually feeding and causing the problem. Uh, If I can put it this way, one of the things you have to learn to do in ministry, let's say, for instance, in one-on-one conversations, is that you have to get past, not only listen uh, to what is being said, but you have to listen for what is being assumed. What is so deeply ingrained in the person, brought in from the culture, that it goes unspoken. It doesn't even have to be argued or justified. And it serves the criterion by which they are evaluating what's going on in their lives. So that's Paul's analysis of the situation, his solution. Even though the problems are not theological per se, right, they're not arguing about doctrine or what we would call doctrine, his solution is very theological. And what I mean by that is that he doesn't approach it by trying to appeal to reason or logic or something like that, even though he employs those things. But he appeals... To what God has revealed about himself. In history, in his mighty deeds, in scripture, and most supremely in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1-4, through it's not just Christ generally, it's specifically Christ crucified. In 1 Corinthians 1-4, through the cross is the criterion. It's not just where God made atonement, which is what it is first and foremost, obviously, but it is the criterion by which everything must be judged. It's the test that everything has to pass if it's going to be called Christian. It's the pattern that everything must be molded into. So Paul says, oh, you think you understand what power is? So what you and I do and what the Corinthians do is we take our worldly understanding of power. What does it mean to be powerful in the world? And then we think the power of God is just that taken out to the infinity. But what Paul says is the power of God is, is supremely revealed in the suffering death of his son. Paradoxically, his power is revealed most supremely in suffering death. Right? And Paul does this with everything, with wisdom. Oh, you think you know what wisdom is? Well, let's stack it up against the cross. Let's demolish your understanding of it and then reform it. You think you understand what spirituality is? We're going to demolish it by the cross and then reform it. You think you know what church is, what ministry is. And beginning in chapter 3 and leading us into chapter 4, it says you think you know what leaders are, what leadership is. It says let's stack it up against the cross. Let's see what cross-shaped leadership is. And that's what we want to talk about today. What does cross-shaped or cruciform leadership look like? Put another way, um, what does it mean to be a leader shaped by the cross? All right, so before getting into this, I want to highlight one element of the cross. Uh, at the cross, Jesus, the God-man, brought together what seemed irreconcilable to us. But at the cross, he brought them together. So at the cross, Jesus brings together justice and mercy. And he holds them together. At the cross, he brings wrath and compassion and holds them together. He brings sinful man, holy God, together. And so what I want to talk about, what I want to point out are three pairs of qualities uh, in this chapter that seem contradictory, that seem incompatible, but in those who are being shaped by the cross, by the power of the cross, these things are held together. Let me say we're we're going to spend most of our time in the first two Pairs of qualities, because the third one bleeds into what I'm assuming Dwayne will discuss next week uh, when he talks about church discipline and things like that. So we'll spend most of our time on the first two pairs of qualities and briefly touch on the last. We obviously can't cover everything. This could really be about three and a half sermons. Uh, It was very painful this week to cut out. uh, There's a lot of stuff on the editing room floor. If you want the director's cut at some point, uh, let me know. So what does a cruciform leader look like? Well, number one, cruciform leaders have both a binding sense of accountability and a liberating sense of freedom. Look at verses 1 through 5 and listen for those two things as I read. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact... I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You hear both the binding sense of accountability and the liberating sense of freedom in those passages. Both of them flowing out of our identity as believers. We here at Liberty talk a lot about living out of our identity in Christ, right? So we are um, the children of God. We are beloved. We are saints. We are, as Steve talked about last week, the temple of God. And those are all great and wondrous things, and amen and amen and amen to all of them. Well, one other thing that we are, and something we don't talk about as much here, but we probably should, is we are servants of Christ. And just like we need to live out of all of those other identities, we have to live out of this identity as well. And this identity gives us both a sense of accountability and a sense of freedom. Because this identity and the accountability and the freedom it brings are formed by the cross. Our accountability as servants are purchased at the cross, they're exemplified at the cross. It's about promoting the cross. It's liberating because of the cross. Our our accountability as servants of Christ is grounded in the cross because one of the things that Christ did on the cross is that he purchased us. Some of us, I think, have a kind of a weird idea. I've had a conversation. with. I think when we think about freedom, we kind of think that Jesus just kind of let us out of the cage, right, before we were kind of... In bondage, we're like a bird in a cage, and then Jesus came along, and he opened the cage door, and he took us out, and he just kind of, go fly now, birdie, be free, right? And that's what we think of as freedom in Christ, right? that's not what he did. Colossians said he brought us out of one kingdom, and then he didn't just set us free. He brought us into another kingdom with a different king, right? He purchased us individually but also corporately together at the cross, and that means this thing, the church, We can't just do whatever we want with it. We can't just build it however we want to build it. Paul's concern here in chapter 4 is an extension of his concern in chapter 3, where he says there will come a time when everyone's work in ministry will be tested. And we'll see how you built this thing. Yeah, You can get it up quickly if you want. Straw, hay, wood, whatever. But we'll see. And the test in chapter 3 is not how big it is or how nice it looks, but whether it survives whether it survives. So, uh, it is grounded. Our accountability is, is grounded in the cross. It's also exhibited in the cross. Well, this is what I mean by that. In John five nineteen, Jesus declares, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then a few verses later, I can do nothing on my own. This kind of accountability in ministry was true even for Jesus. Even though he's fully God, equal to the Father, he was also the human servant, Messiah. And that means he couldn't just decide how he was going to do ministry. He couldn't just come up with his own plan about how he was going to redeem his people. He too was accountable as a servant. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that his whole life, was about obedience culminating in the cross. And so that the cross exemplifies what it means to be accountable to a master, to a Lord in ministry. And this cross-purchased and cross-exemplified accountability has to work itself out in our lives. It has to work itself out in our head, in our hearts, in our and in our hands. Right? In, our, in our minds, it needs to work itself out this way, especially for us as leaders has to work itself out in a commitment to becoming a student of the word of god and i do want to emphasize the word student right as as you mature into leadership accountability at some point has to lead you to graduate from sort of a daily devotional type reading of scripture to a serious study of his word right now let me be clear daily devotional reading is good please hear me on that and it's important What I'm saying is that it has to be supplemented by a more serious, rigorous study. Why? Because cross-shaped leaders who feel a cross-shaped sense of accountability are always asking when it comes to ministry, what does the Lord have to say on this? We don't just go running around willy-nilly thinking we can do whatever we want in ministry. And that's hard for us because we are impatient, pragmatic, activist, American Christians. We get stuff done. That's what we do. It is the probably defining, there's a lot of debate about what defines evangelicalism in America, right? And everyone agrees it's not really a doctrinal core, or at least it's not that explicit. What really defines is we're activists. We're active about stuff. And so it's hard. And we want to just hurry up and get to it. If you want to say anything to me about ministry, it better be immediately practical. I better be able to walk out the door today and do something with it, or else I don't really want to hear it. Right, biblical, theological foundations, who has the time? Who has the time? But here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Number one, it's very impractical. You wind up with a really limited toolbox. You can't actually do what Paul is doing here, which is to take what seems like a very non-theological problem, division, and minister to it theologically by the cross you wind up with a very limited toolbox. But the other thing, the other problem with it is this, that it exhibits or fails to exhibit a mature sense of accountability. A man named Thomas Schiermacher in an article called Romans as a Charter for World Mission writes this, whoever wants to do mission pragmatically and therefore to renounce theology and teaching because they might hinder the practice, is doing mission in his own commission and does not care what God has said about mission. To say that you just care about being practical is to say that you don't care what God, what Jesus Christ, who owns the church, has said about how the church ought to be built. Mature, serious, accountable leaders become committed to his word. Now, let me say this, Schiermacher's next sentence goes on to say, well, if theological reflection doesn't lead to practical steps to reaching the loss, well, you've got a problem too. But here at Liberty, the first, his first warning is probably the most more important uh, and applicable warning. And let me say this. This is not meant in any way to stifle the initiative that I see taking place and that I'm so grateful for. I'm so grateful for m- so much of the kind of ground-up activity that's happening here at Liberty. It's not a call to stifle that. It's a call to ask all of you to become more mature in your reflection about how this works, what the church is, what its mission is, how Christ calls us to build it. This kind of accountability also has to play itself out in our hearts, manifesting itself in our attitude, in our priorities. Are you In our attitudes, are you reverent and sober? Not somber, but reverent and sober. About your responsibilities in ministry? Or are you relatively casual about them? You feel free to get started late, to show up late, to, I'll put in the minimum amount as long as the person who oversees me doesn't yell at me about it? Um, Or are you reverent about it? Is there a seriousness about it? What are your priorities in ministries? What matters to you more, faithfulness to Christ or popularity and applause? Put another way, what does success in ministry mean to you? If it means anything other than being faithful and pleasing to Christ, then you, and I know I, need to repent of our idolatry. And this kind of accountability needs to work itself out in our hands, in concrete action and hard work. When it comes to your commitments and responsibilities in ministry, is your effort determined more by what you can get away with or is it more determined by the worth of the master? There's a deep cross-shaped sense of accountability that we need to have. And this, all these things, right, head, heart, hands, all of them come together in the fact that the thing we are most accountable about is promoting the cross. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says that in addition to being a servant of Christ, he's also a steward of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God, that's not so much a separate task in this passage uh, as, a, as being a servant of Christ, but it's really, in some ways, an explanation of what he means by a servant. The word mysteries here doesn't refer to like something that's kind of esoteric or like you, know, you need a computer code or something to figure it out. It just means something that for a while in history was only um, partially known, that was hidden for a while, but now has been made known fully and clearly in Christ. That is the gospel. Specifically, this gospel of a suffering Savior, Christ crucified, is the foolish, weak, and yet wise and strong way that God would redeem His people. And we are to be a steward of that mystery. We are fundamentally accountable to promote the message of the cross. That is our fundamental task, individually but also corporately. Are you more about promoting yourself, your strengths, your abilities, your eloquence, your ministry skills, your leadership skills, your weaknesses? And yes, in our kind of therapeutic culture, we can show off our weaknesses. Or are you fundamentally about the all-sufficiency, promoting the all-sufficiency of that weak and foolish cross? Are you willing to declare the cross to a culture that, just like the ancient Corinthians, uh, see it as foolish and offensive? A message as foolish and offensive because to declare that it is necessary cuts against a culture of of self-esteem and moral relativism. To declare that it is the exclusive means of God's salvation cuts against a culture of tolerance and to declare its call to sacrifice and suffering that cuts against our culture of self-exaltation and comfort. Paul says in chapter 1 that the message of the cross is always foolish until, as he says in chapter 2, the spirit kicks in. This is our fundamental thing, the thing that we are fundamentally accountable for, to promote the cross. And one of the things that leaders have to do is to resist the pressure and temptation from every side, from both within them and from from around them, to be about anything and everything else. There will always be a cultural pressure from the outside for us as a church to be about something other than promoting the cross. And there will, because of that outside pressure, also be a pressure from within, here, to be about something and the way that that happens, the way that we lose that, can happen a step at a time. We don't wake up one day and go, ah, the cross, who needs it? Get, kick that to the curb, right? It happens slowly but surely. At first, it becomes something we just kind of assume. Oh, yeah, 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 we all know that. And then at some point, we lose its excitement. It's just kind of something necessary. Let's get it out of the way, but let's get on to what we're really excited about. And then we keep it, but we decentralize it. It becomes secondary or peripheral to what we're really about. And then all of a sudden, it's gone. And leaders accountable to Jesus Christ, one of the main things that they have to do is fight that pressure. And it's coming from all directions all the time they are going to be pressures. Well, that makes church boring. Shouldn't we be doing a lot of other stuff? Where's the activity? Where's the programs? Where's the everything else that we need to be about? And we have to keep it, not only keep it, but keep it central and fundamental. And we're accountable for it. Now, here's the thing. For many of you, this talk of being accountable to Jesus may feel burdensome feels like, oh, my God, I've got to please him, I've got to please him. But that's because you, and I guess I yet, haven't yet fully applied the cross to it. Right, we've spoken of our identity as servants of Christ and its accountability and how it is purchased at the cross, how it's exemplified in the cross. It's about promoting the cross. But our accountability as servants of Christ are also liberating because of the cross. Right? To us, being someone's servant, being accountable to them, and being free seem like contradictory, irreconcilable notions. But that's because we define freedom apart from the cross. We define it the way that our culture does rather than as the cross does. Now, if you're here today and you're kind of checking out Christianity, you're not yet a believer, and one of the things you're thinking is that the choice between staying a non-believer and becoming a believer is a choice between having no master or having a master. I'm here I tell you, that is not the choice. You've bought into a lie of our culture, and that lies that we we can have no master, that we can live master-free. But that's a lie. We all have masters. Whatever we place our hope in, whatever we place our trust in, whatever we fear, that's our master. And we all have one. Right? Therefore, contrary to our culture's assertion, freedom is about have, isn't about having no master. It's about having the right master. We find freedom not in having no master, because that's not even a choice, but in having the right one. Jesus unmasked this lie of our culture and shows us what true freedom is in Matthew 11. Right? So, There he issues one of the most famous invitations in the Bible. Probably all of us have quoted it at some point. We've probably told it to ourselves. He says there, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. That is an amazing invitation. What an amazing invitation that is. But what's startling is the next sentence. Jesus continues, take my yoke upon you. Now, If you're not aware, a yoke is a big wooden frame that you strap onto animals so that they can lug a heavy load behind them, right? It's an agricultural thing. And it serves as a metaphor for a person's subjection. Now think about that for a second. I'm laboring. I'm heavy laden. I hear Jesus' call. I come to him because he promises me rest. And what he does is strap a yoke onto my back. How does that make any sense? The key is in the pronoun. Take my yoke upon you, he says. The implication being not the one you've already got on your back. Not the heavy one. Not the one that you weren't meant for, but mine. The one you were meant for. And in this you will find rest. In this you'll find rest. Take my yoke. Why? Because it is gentle. Because I am gentle and lowly in heart. And therefore, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And where is his gentleness and lowliness of heart most supremely revealed? At the cross. Because of the cross, accountability to him as a servant of him is liberating. Because it is him that we are a servant of. Because it is Him we are a servant of. And when we become accountable to Him, we become free from the fear of man. The more real that accountability to Him becomes, the more free we are from the fear of man. Look again at verse 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I would give everything for that kind of freedom in my life. We are constantly worrying about what the other person is thinking, right? And the stupid thing is the only thing they're thinking is what am I thinking about them, right? That's what they're thinking, okay? Just to give you insight, right? But here he is. Now, Paul isn't talking here about being closed off to input or being unteachable. What he's talking about here is with full clarity knowing who you're trying to please and the freedom that comes from that. It's a lot more freeing to have one boss than than 200 bosses. And the more that you realize and are committed to the one boss, the less pulling and tugging the 200 other bosses will have on your life. Listen, being a leader means being judged and criticized. That's just the way it is. That's just part of the job description. If you're not making somebody mad, you're probably not doing it right. Okay, That's just a simple fact. If someone's not criticizing you, you're not doing it right. In fact, good leaders, because they're trying to be true to the wondrous balance of Scripture, will actually get criticized for the exact opposite thing. Okay? So, one, the same person will be criticized by one person. Your messages are too theological. Seriously, could you bring it down a little bit? And they'll get a separate email that night. Yo, listen, your sermons are too light and fluffy. Could you please be more theological? Right? same leader will get an email, listen you are too uptight, stop being so organized, stop trying to do everything and then that night they'll get an email, why are we so disorganized, why are we so that's what happens in leadership sometimes you'll get criticized fairly, sometimes unfairly, right, several months ago, I got an email with uh, <clears throat> some helpful suggestions, right from someone that I've actually never met, and have not since met because part of the email was to say that they would moved on to another church, so I've never actually met them The email was based on some false understanding, apparently. Uh, They apparently thought that I still oversaw the home meeting stuff, because that's what they wanted to write me about. But I haven't overseen home meetings in like a year. And all the uh, suggestions were like personal preferences. There's nothing of like real concern there. You get emails like that all the time if you're a leader. That's just what leadership is. And you're going to be tugged and pulled from every direction as leaders. That's why one of my professors at school uh, remarked that leaders have to develop a combination of thick skin and soft heart. I like the way he worked. And you get that combination wrong in any way. Thin skin and soft heart. Uh, Thick skin, hard heart, uh, you get in trouble. You need a thick skin but a soft heart. And in order not to be tossed to and fro by this reality of 100, 200 people trying to be your boss, You need at least two things. Number one, you need the deep heart knowledge of your gentle master, the one revealed on the cross, who has already secured the ultimate verdict on your life, beloved. And you need an ever-maturing set of biblical convictions that are hard-earned through the serious study of Scripture that I mentioned earlier. Because without that, you don't have any criterion by which to judge all the helpful input you're getting and you get tossed to and fro every direction. You probably never thought of the serious studying of Scripture as a part of growing in freedom from the fear of man, but it is. Think of it this way, trying to stand still, right, as people are trying to push you. If you're on one leg, something just comes along and taps you, and you oh, shoot, right? In either leg, if you only have either of those legs, even if you have deep heart understanding of Jesus, if you don't have a growing, maturing set of biblical convictions about what, the church is and what ministry is and what its priorities are, you're going to get tossed around by every criticism that comes along. And you won't know this kind of freedom. Again, Paul's not talking about being closed off to input or correction. He's talking about knowing who your ultimate master is. And about knowing what the relationship between human leaders is and those who, they fo- who follow. Right? I'm here to serve you as one of the leaders I hope that I've served you well. I know that I could have served you better. I hope to serve you better in the days to come, in whatever time God still has me here. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 5, for Christ's sake, for Jesus' sake, I'm your servant. But, here's the key though I'm your servant, you are not my master. You will not be giving me my final grade. Leaders have to understand that. Those who are being led have to understand that. Yes, leaders are here to serve. But the people are not their master. And that combination is critical. That combination is critical. And because it's Christ who judges, Paul says in verse 5, that we shouldn't pronounce judgment until his return. The, one of the reasons that we shouldn't be knocked around people's criticism or even our own self-judgment about our ministry is because none of us knows the end of the story. None of us knows how this is turning out. Paul isn't saying don't make any judgments. Scripture says that we have to make judgments, we have to evaluate, we have to be discerning. But what he's, what he's saying is understand that all those judgments are provisional at best, right? And that Jesus will come and give the final one. This is a lesson I've had to learn over and over again myself. Uh, When I was doing youth ministry, I was a youth leader for a while, a director, and so I had to teach or preach every Sunday. And Sunday nights would be brutal for me. I would pour over every detail of the sermon, right? Every uh, thing that I could have said better, all the verbal slip-ups, the eight wonderful illustrations that came 30 minutes after the sermon was over, right? If after service you're talking to me and I seem distracted, They'll probably be because the perfect illustration just popped into my head. And I'm t- kicking myself for not having thought of it an hour earlier. Right? And Sunday nights would be brutal. If I poured over everything that went wrong. I'm guessing some of you home meeting leaders know what I'm talking about. Right? Those nights when every question you toss out is met by deafening silence. Such that you can hear the crickets just chirp. Or, I mean, since we're in the inner city Philly, right? The mice <laughs> crawling along the kitchen or something, right? The nights when even you don't know what you're trying to say. But time and time again, sometimes a day later, sometimes a week later, sometimes a year or more later, God would show me that he really meant it when he declared in Isaiah 50, 10 and 11, that just like the rain and the snow come down, And they don't return to him without first watering the earth and bringing forth the seed. His water and his word never goes forth and comes back to him until it accomplishes what he sent it out to do. The Bible shows this over and over again, the testimony of people whose lives say we shouldn't pass judgment too early. Think about Abraham for a second. 75 years of his life, he's just some dude chilling, living his life. Nothing special about him. Now, you would think that we could pronounce judgment on what a man's life has been by the 75th year. We we should be able to sum up a man's life by the time he's 75, right? But he's sitting there for 75 years, nothing special. Then in the 75th year, God comes calling. he says, Abram, come with me. Have I got a promise for you? I'm about to rock your world. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Well, think about two thieves, who I'm assuming had similar um, crimes, leading them to the same penalty, hanging on each side of some peasant teacher. And until the very last breath of their life, it looks like their lives are headed for the same destiny. And then, before one of their final breaths, God comes calling. He says, Hey, you, come with me. Come into my paradise. Judge nothing before the appointed time. The greatest um, example of this is the cross. I refer you to two messages, both of them entitled It's Friday, but Sunday's Coming. Uh, one of them is by, the original one was by a man named S.M. Lockridge and another one's by Tony Campolo. On Friday, we looked at the cross and we thought it was the proof that Jesus was a liar and a blasphemer and a sinner. On Friday, we looked at the cross and we said, it's the proof that he has been defeated, that he has lost. And I wish I had a big voice for this part of this, but it was Friday. And Sunday was coming. And on Sunday, we looked at that same cross and we realized that it was not the proof that he was a sinner, but the proof that he loves sinners. And we, on Sunday, we looked at that same cross and we realized it was not the place where he was defeated, but the place where Paul puts it in Colossians. He put, Uh, He defeated all of his enemies and subjected them under his feet and made them a laughingstock. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Instead, concentrate on being faithful to the one and only true master to whom you must give an account. Know that your responsibility is faithfulness and not fruitfulness, at least not as the world defines it. After all, as Paul says in chapter 3, God alone can give the increase. And as you grow in your sense of accountability to your one master, you'll be free from every false master. The second thing, and I just want to, these next two are going to be a little bit quicker. Number two, cross-shaped leaders are both suffering, and they're victorious. Look at verses 8 through 13 and listen. Uh, He says, Already you have all you want, already you have become rich, without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. We revile, when reviled we bless. When persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So cross-shaped leaders are both suffering and victorious. Paul is using really sarcastic language to confront the Corinthians about their self-congratulatory pride. And the source of their pride is a matter of debate among biblical scholars Um, And we're not going to deal with it today. But what I want you to see, if you look at the language of verse 10, fools, wise, weak, strong, the honorable and disreputable, what he's basically saying is that you, Corinthians, have denied the cross. If you hear the echo of chapter 1, you have denied the cross. Because the cross, as exemplified and shown in our lives, is marked out in a life of suffering. So I just want to really quickly talk about this in, in a couple of ways. Number one, what kind of suffering? Why suffering? And lastly, what might it look like in our life? What kind of suffering? Number one, uh, so suffering can come into our life for a variety of reasons. Right? It comes into our lives because of the result of our sin and God's loving chastisement of us. It can come into our lives as a result of someone else's sin into our lives. Sometimes it comes into our life just because we live in a broken world. Right? And it is good and right that we try to eliminate those kinds of suffering in our life and in the lives of other people. But there's another kind of suffering that we ought to embrace that we must embrace as cross-shaped people. And it's a suffering that comes from being committed to people and sticking with them when things get tough and when they get tough to deal with. Man named Miroslav Volf puts it like this. It's the suffering which comes to us because in a flawed world we seek to lead lives of integrity and service, seeking righteousness and practicing committed generosity toward our family, friends, near and distant laborers. When we, then we suffer because we love. You can avoid this kind of suffering, but not if you're going to be a crucified uh, leader following a crucified Messiah. For many of us as good Christians, a great many of our sins don't revolve around pursuing illegitimate pleasures, but about trying to avoid legitimate and necessary pain. That's our great sin. And to be clear, we don't seek suffering. We don't glamorize it or romanticize it. Only people who've never actually suffered do that. And we don't go measuring ourselves. Am I suffering enough? Right? Some kind of narcissistic self-consumption. Right? But as Wolf puts it, we don't seek suffering. We seek joy. Joy for those we love. And in their joy, our own joy. We practice love and take suffering as its price. For love matters more than ease. I just want to mention one reason why the suffering matters, because otherwise, it's impossible to reveal the love of Christ. The love of Christ, we, when we talk about sharing the love of Christ with people, we generally tend to talk about it as some sort of like general kindness that we're going to share with people. Now, that's a very good and important thing, and don't devalue that. But that is not the love of Christ. The love of Christ is suffering love, and not just suffering love, but suffering. For those who hated him. Right. To show the love of Christ requires suffering. So, what might this look like in our lives? Just really quickly. Number one, obviously, it's not going to look the way it looked for the apostles here, as it's described, but it's going to look uh, like some ways in our life. So, number one, just physically, especially in fatigue. Right, There's a fatigue that can come to us uh, because of a schedule that's shaped by ego or by insecurity. Okay, that kind of fatigue? No, not that kind of fatigue. But there is also a, a cross-shaped and right biblical fatigue that comes in ministry if you're a cross-shaped leader, and you can't avoid that. It's not a fatigue. We just kind of grit our uh, teeth and bear through. But it's one where we remind ourselves what we're about, what we're trying to do. It's Paul says in Colossians 1, to present everyone maturing Christ. We remember the goal, and then we remember the source of power, because he says, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that works powerfully in me. Sometimes it works itself out in our lives through con- regular contact with difficult people. Cross-shaped leaders have to walk toward the people that everyone else walks away from. That's part of what it means to suffer as a cross-shaped leader. Uh, and one of the final things I want to say about this is this, that it challenges our understanding of fulfillment. Right? It's easy to sacrifice and even to suffer when people are responding well to it, when we're getting to use all of our gifts, right? when people are praising us and thanking us and all of that kind of stuff. But here's the problem with that. There's no foolishness to that definition of fulfillment. But just like everything, just like everything, it has to, Fulfillment has to be defined by the cross. And a foolish cross will produce a foolish definition of fulfillment. So G. Fernando writes this, Vocational fulfillment in the kingdom of God has a distinct character, different from vocational fulfillment in society. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If we are doing God's will, we are happy and fulfilled. But for Jesus and for us, God's will includes the cross the cross must be an essential element in our definition of vocational fulfillment. How has the cross shaped your definition of fulfillment? In ministry, in work, in family, in relationships, in home meeting, in church, in community, how has the cross shaped your definition, what it means to be fulfilled? But they are not just suffering, they're victorious. And Why are they victorious? Because of the way they respond. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Paul is victorious because the suffering that he has faced hasn't made him hard or cynical or angry or vengeful. But rather, through the cross and because of the cross, they've become an occasion to become more like his Savior. Victory is defined by the cross. And this is how the cross defines it. Refusing to return evil for evil. Or to be overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. In the cross, suffering and victory are brought together such that suffering is put into the service of our victory. Finally, I'm just going to make this last point. So cross sheep leaders are accountable and free. They're suffering and victorious. And number three, they're t- tender and tough. As I mentioned, this point is just really brief. Uh, If you look at verses 14 through 21, number 1, the toughness, you see it right at the end. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or in a spirit of gentleness? There are times when cross sheep leaders have to plant their feet, say tough things to people, and say them with toughness. Why? Because the cross shows us how serious sin is. Because the cross shows us how precious the church is, and therefore we have to be zealous about it. And because the cross shows us how dangerous sin is, because it's wages or death. And so, like a parent trying to be at times having to be tough to protect to protect their children, leaders sometimes have to be tough with people in an attempt to protect them from the wreckage that sin can cause in their life. But they are also tender. Right? Tenderness is their default stance, not toughness. And this too is because of the cross knowing that our own shame was taken by Christ on the cross. We don't, as Paul declares in verse 14, confront in order to shame or to punish. We do it for God's glory, for the sake of the church, and in the hopes that the person will turn and be reconciled to God, and thereby know the joy of their salvation again. Their cross-shaped leaders are accountable and free. They're suffering and victorious. They're tough and they're tender none of these things are easy. So I lift up this one final promise to you in verse 5. When Jesus returns, each one will receive his commendation from God. He'll return. The trumpet will sound. And one day we'll kneel at his feet. And he'll give to us, Scripture says, the crown of life. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. And that day, that day will make every day, every hard thing that comes with being a cross-shaped leader worth it. And we'll take that crown off our head and we'll lay them back at his feet. And we'll say, no, every one of these belongs to you. And we'll join the chorus in heaven that sings praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Until the day that we get to sing that song in person to him face to face. May you live a life, as Brandon Manning once put it, signed by the signature of Jesus, the cross.